tune in to the Family Industrial Complex podcast here on Revolution Radio, Studio B, every Wednesday, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Get fit, empowered, physically, mentally, and spiritually. The Secret Kindergarten is here for the young children of the world. The best program on the radio for kids. Dealing with the most important topics in the whole universe. Fairy tales, music and movement, numbers, plants, animals, fun, colors, insects. Take care and cast your ears out to catch a story from the world of other young things. Reach out, up, under, and over. Sing a song. Talk about feelings. Just remember the magic word. And the magic word is no. Step on into the secret kindergarten. Saturdays, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on Revolution Radio. We, we, we did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyalty? Is it sedition? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others will take. But as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given right, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we take that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. All right, ladies and gents. Not down a bit. Uh, Welcome to Free Association, live on Revolution Radio. It's 4 p.m. in the northeast of England in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. It's 11 a.m all along the East Coast in the States. Uh, I'm here every week, well, pretty much every week. I might take a break over Christmas, but I, I haven't decided that yet. Last year, I, I kept getting the urge to jump on, so I might turn up over Christmas. You never know, because I was listening, but I just I wasn't in kind of involved in the round tables or anything, but I was listening. I might well jump on and do a music show at some point over New Year as well. Uh, Because I did that last year, and it was fun. 
Uh, so why not do it again? Uh, yeah. So I've got a a piece lined up, which is a a conversation uh, Lex Friedman did with John Mearsheimer, who's a international relations guy from the University of Chicago. It's a little bit academic and theoretical, but I thought it's a it's a a good introduction to kind of his way of thinking, and he's he's been pretty much on the money as far as the Ukraine war is concerned. So I thought I'd do that, but then it's the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who starting, and it's the 60th anniversary of the JFK assassination. And I was listening to some some things over the last couple of days about uh, uh, the viruses, and well, the, in particular the COVID virus, if it exists, and and the COVID vaccine being a, a carrier for prion-related diseases, so I thought I might play that as well. So John Mearsheimer's favourite, but I haven't still haven't made my mind up yet, and we're ha- we're five minutes into the show, so it tells you that it's just going to happen the way it happens. But uh, I will I will do that. I will play that. So let's get into the show, and I think what I'm going to do is play the John Mearsheimer because it's it's kind of well. I was going to think I was thinking about playing some Mayor Brussel, but John Mearsheimer's kind of got my vote. So let's do that. See how it goes. If it's too dull, then let me know and I'll switch it. But um, it's it's interesting to me. I was listening to it and I thought. It's about 45 minutes worth, and it's a, about kind of the most academic level that I can do on a Saturday. So it, it's a good introduction anyway. So let's just do this and see how it goes. There's, a no, there's noises going on outside my flat, so it's distracting me a little bit. So I apologize for that, but uh, I don't know what's going on. Right, and... Now, now I need to work out again where everything's gone. I think Skype must have updated at some point, and they've moved everything around. So uh, let me see. Let's just let's just play this, and then we'll see see what happens from there. I can to decrease the amount of suffering in the world by trying to reveal our common humanity. I believe that in the end, truth 
and love wins. I will get attacked for being naive, for being a shill, for being weak. I am none of those things. But I do make mistakes, and I will get better. I love you all. This is a Lex Friedman podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here's John Mearsheimer. Can you explain your view on power in international politics as outlined in your book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, and in your writing since then? Yeah, I make two sets of points there. First of all, I believe that power is the currency of international relations. And by that, I mean that states are deeply interested in the balance of power, and they're interested in maximizing how much power they control. And the question is why states care so much about power. In the international system, there's no higher authority. So if you get into trouble and you dial 911, there's nobody at the other end. In a system like that, you have no choice but to figure out for yourself how best to protect yourself. And the best way to protect yourself is to be powerful, to have as much power as you can possibly gain over all the other states in the system. Therefore, states care about power because it enhances or maximizes their prospects for survival. Second point I would make is that in the realist story, or in my story, power is largely a function of material factors. Uh, the two key building blocks of power are population size and wealth. You want to have a lot of people and you want to be really wealthy. Of course, this is why the United States is so powerful. It has lots of people and it has lots of wealth. China was not considered a great power until recently uh, because it didn't have a lot of wealth. It certainly had population size, but it didn't have wealth. And without both a large population and much wealth, you're usually not considered a great power. Uh, so I think power matters. Uh, but uh, when we talk about power, it's important to understand that it's uh, population size and wealth that are underpinning it. So there's a lot of interesting things there. First, you said nations in relation to each other are is essentially in a state of anarchism. Yeah. Well, anarchy basically means the opposite of hierarchy. Sometimes people think when you're talking about anarchy, you're talking about murder and mayhem, but that's not what anarchy means in the realist context. Mm -hmm. Anarchy simply means that you don't have hierarchy. There's no higher authority that sits above states. States are like pool balls on a table, right? And in an anarchic world, uh, there's no higher authority that you can turn to uh, if you get into trouble. And of course, the political philosopher who laid this all out was Thomas Hobbes. And Hobbes talked about life in the state of nature. And in the state of nature, you have individuals and those individuals compete with each other for power. And the reason that they do is because in the state of nature, by definition, you have no higher authority. And Hobbes's view is that the way to get out of this terrible situation 
where individuals are competing with each other and even killing each other is to create a state. It's what he calls the Leviathan. And that, of course, is the title of this famous book. So the idea is to escape anarchy, you create a state. And that means you go from anarchy to hierarchy. The problem in international politics is that there is no world state. There is no hierarchy. And if you have no hierarchy and you're in an anarchic system, you have no choice but to try to maximize your relative power to make sure you are, as we used to say when I was a kid on New York City playgrounds, the biggest and baddest dude on the block. Not because you necessarily want to beat up on other kids or on other states, but because, again, that's the best way to survive. And as I like to point out to people, the best example of what happens when you're weak in international politics is what the Chinese call the century of national humiliation. Uh, from the late 1840s to the late 1940s, the Chinese were remarkably weak, and the great powers in the system preyed upon them. And uh, that sends a very important message to not only the Chinese, but to other states in the system. Don't be weak. Be as powerful as you can. And we'll talk about it, but humiliation can lead to resentment, and resentment leads to uh, something you've also studied, which is Nazi Germany in the 1930s. We'll talk about it. Um, but staying to the psychology and philosophy picture, what's the connection between the will to power in the individual, as you mentioned, and the will to power in a nation? The will to power in an individual has a lot to do with individual psychology. Uh, the story that I tell about the pursuit of power is a structural argument. It, it's an argument that says when you are in a particular structure, when you're in a system that has a specific architecture, which is anarchy, the states have no choice but to compete for power. Uh, so structure is really driving the story here. Will to power has a lot more to do with an individual uh, in, in the Nietzschean story where that concept comes from. So it's very important to understand that I'm not arguing that states are inherently aggressive, right? My point is that as long as states are in anarchy, right, they have no choice but to behave in an aggressive fashion. But if you went to a hierarchic system, uh, there's no reason for those states to worry about the balance of power, because if they get into trouble, there is a higher authority that they can turn to. There is, in effect, a Leviathan. So what is the role of military might in this uh, will to power on the national level? Well, military might is what ultimately matters. As I said to you before, the two building blocks of power are population size and wealth. You didn't mention military might. I did not. No, that's right. And it's good that you caught that, because if you have a large population mm -hmm. and you're a wealthy country, what you do is you build a large military. And it's ultimately the size of your military that matters, uh, because militaries fight wars. And if states are concerned about survival, which I argue is the principal goal of every state in the international system, for what I think are obvious reasons, then they're going to care about having 
a powerful military that can protect them if another state comes after them. Well, it's not obvious that a large nation with a lot of people and a lot of money should necessarily build a gigantic army and seek to attain superpower, like dominant sole superpower status to military might. But you're saying, as you see the world today, it has to be that way. Yeah, I'm arguing it is obvious. In 1783, it was comprised of 13 measly colonies strung out along the Atlantic seaboard. Over time, you know, the uh, various leaders of the United States went to great lengths to turn that country into the dominant power in the Western Hemisphere. And then once that was achieved in 1900, we've gone to great lengths to make sure that there's no peer uh, competitor in the system. Uh, we just want to make sure that we're number one. Uh, and my argument is that this is not peculiar to the United States. Uh, if I'm China, for example, today, I would want to dominate Asia the way the United States dominates the Western Hemisphere. They'd be fools not to. If I were Imperial Germany, I'd want to dominate all of Europe the way the United States dominates the Western Hemisphere. Why? Because if you dominate all of Europe, assuming you're Imperial Germany or Napoleonic France, then no other state in the area or in the region can threaten you because you're simply so powerful. Uh, and again, what I'm saying here is that the structure of the international system really matters. It's the fact that you're in this anarchic system where survival is your principal goal and where I can't know your intentions, right? You're another state. I can't know that at some point you might not come after me. You might. And if you're really powerful and I'm not, I'm in deep trouble. Yeah. So uh, some of the ideas underlying what you've said, uh, offensive realism, which I would love to talk to you about sort of the history of realism versus liberalism. But some of the ideas you already mentioned, uh, anarchy between states, everybody's trying to develop in military capabilities, uncertainty, such an interesting concept. Uh, states cannot be sure that other states will not use military capabilities against them, which okay. is that's of enormous importance. Really important. Story. And so interesting because. You also say that this makes realists more cautious and more peaceful. <laughs> the uncertainty, because of all the uncertainty involved here, it's better to approach international politics with caution. It's really interesting to think about. Uh, again, survival, most states are interested in, in survival. And the other interesting thing is you assume all the states are rational. <laughs> Um, which most of the time, most of the time you call this framework offensive realism. C can you just give a overview of the history of the realism versus liberalism debate as worldviews? Well, I think for many centuries now, the big divide, uh, within the world of international relations theory is between realism and liberalism. These are time-honored bodies of theory. 
and before I tell you what I think the differences are between those two bodies of theory, it is important to emphasize that there are differences among realists mm -hmm. and differences among liberals. Um, and uh, so when you talk about me as an offensive realist, you should understand that there are also defensive realists out there. And there are uh, a panoply of liberal theories as well. But uh, basically, realists believe that power matters, that states compete for power, and that war is an instrument of statecraft. And uh, uh, liberals, on the other hand, have what I would say is a more idealistic view of the world. Uh, this is not to say that they're naive or foolish, but they believe there are aspects of international politics uh, that lead to a less competitive and more peaceful world than most realists see. Uh, and I'll lay out for you very quickly what are the three major liberal theories today that I think will give you a sense of the more optimistic perspective that is inherent in the liberal enterprise. Uh, the first and most important of the liberal theories is democratic peace theory. And this is a theory that says democracies do not fight against other democracies. So the more the world is populated with democracies, the less likely it is that we will have wars. Uh, and this basic argument is inherent in Francis Fukuyama's The End of History. He argues that democracy triumphed first over fascism in the 20th century. It then triumphed over communism. And that means that in the future, we're going to have more and more liberal democracies on the planet. And if you have more and more liberal democracies and those democracies don't fight each other, then you have a more peaceful world. That was his argument. It's a very liberal argument. A realist like me would say that it doesn't matter whether a state is a democracy or not. All states behave the same way because the structure of the system, getting back to our earlier discussion about international anarchy, the structure of the system leaves those states no choice, whether they're democracies or autocracies. And again, the liberal view, this first liberal theory, is that democracies don't fight other democracies. And therefore, the more democracies you have, the more peaceful the world. Can I just uh, sort of try to unpack that a little bit? So on uh, the democratic peace theory, I guess would say that in democracies, leaders are elected. And the underlying assumption is most people want peace, and so they will elect peacemakers. So the more you, democracies you have, the more likely you have peace. And then the realist perspective, what says that it doesn't matter if the majority of people want peace. The structure of international politics is such that superpowers want to become more super and powerful, and they do that through war. You can't make that argument that you're making about democracies, because if you're saying that democracies are inclined toward peace and that the electorate picks leaders who are inclined towards peace, then you have to show that democracies are in general more 
peaceful yeah. than non-democracies. And you can't support that argument. You can find lots of evidence to support the argument that democracies don't fight other democracies. So the argument I believe that you have to make if you're going to support democratic peace theory, the main argument you have to make is that liberal democracies have a healthy respect for each other and they can assess each other's intentions. If you're a liberal democracy and I'm a liberal democracy, we know we have value systems that argue against aggression and argue for peaceful resolution of crises. And therefore, given these norms, we can trust each other. We can know each other's intentions. Remember, for realists like me, uncertainty about intentions really helps drive the train. Mm -hmm. But if you're talking about two democracies, right, the argument there is that they know each other's intentions. And for you, sure, maybe democracies reduce uncertainty a little bit, but not enough to stop the train. I think that's right. Yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> so that's democratic peace theory. Yes. The second theory is economic interdependence theory. And that's the argument that in a globalized world like the one that we live in and have lived in for a long time, there's a great deal of economic interdependence. And if you and I are two countries, uh, or if you and me are two countries and uh, we're economically interdependent and we're both getting prosperous as a result of this economic intercourse, the last thing that we're going to do is start a war, either one of us, because who would kill the goose that lays the golden eggs? It's that kind of argument. So there you have an argument that economic interdependence leads to peace. And then the third liberal argument has to do with institutions, uh, sometimes referred to as liberal institutionalism. And this is the argument that if you can get states into institutions where they become rule-abiding actors, they will obey the rules that dictate that war is not acceptable. Uh, so if you get them to accept uh, uh, the UN rules on when you can and cannot initiate a war, uh, then you'll have a more peaceful world. So those are the liberal theories. And as you can tell, they're very different from realism as articulated by somebody like me. Can you uh, maybe argue against the uh, economic interdependence and in the institutions that institutions follow rules um, a little bit? So the, the, the golden goose with the golden egg, you're saying that nations are happy to kill the goose because, again, they want power. If they think it's necessary to kill the golden goose yeah. because of security concerns, they will do it. The point is that economic interdependence at its root has prosperity as the core variable. Yeah. In the realist story, the core variable is survival and survival always trumps prosperity. So. If you go back to the period before World War One, we're in Europe. It's 1913 or early 1914. What you see is that you have an intense security competition between all of the great powers. 
On one side, you have the triple alliance, and on the other side, you have the triple entente. You have these two alliances, and you have an intense security competition between them, okay? At the same time, you have a great deal of economic interdependence. It's amazing how much economic intercourse is taking place in Europe among all the actors, mm-hmm. right? And people are getting prosperous, or countries are getting prosperous as a result. But nevertheless, in the famous July crisis of 1914, this economic prosperity is unable to prevent World War I because security concerns or survival is more important. Uh, so there are, you know, going to be lots of situations where prosperity and survival come into conflict. And in those cases, survival will win. And uh, maybe you can speak to the different camps of realists. You said offensive and defensive. Can you draw a distinction between those two? Yeah. Let me just back up a bit on that one. And you were talking about will to power before. Uh, the first big divide between realists is structural realists and human nature realists. Nice. Mm-hmm. And Hans Morgenthau, who was influenced by Nietzsche and therefore had that will to power logic embedded in his thinking about how the world works, right? He was a human nature realist. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm a structural realist and I believe it's not human nature. It's, it's not individuals and some will to power that drives competition and war. What drives competition and war is the structure of the system. It's anarchy. So you're not as romantic as the human nature realists. Yeah, there's just a, a world of difference between the two. Sure. It's just important to understand that. So within that, from the structural, there's a subdivision also of offensive and defensive. Yes, inside the structural yeah. realist world, right? And you have a handful of realists who believe that the structure of the system fosters competition for sure security competition but it really rules out great power war almost all the time Mm -hmm. so it makes sense to care about the balance of power but to focus on maintaining how much power you have that's the defense of realism Mm -hmm. maintaining how much power you have not trying to gain more power Because the argument the defensive realists make is that if you try to gain more power, the system will punish you. The structure will punish you. I'm not a defensive realist. I'm an offensive realist. And my argument is that states look for opportunities to gain more power. And every time they see or almost every time they see an opportunity to gain more power, Um, And they think the likelihood of success is high and the cost will not be great. They'll jump at that opportunity. Just to linger on the human nature perspective, how do you explain Hitler and Nazi Germany? Uh, Just one of the more recent aggressive expansions through military might. How do you explain that in the framework of uh, offensive realism? Well, I think that 
Nazi Germany was driven in large part by structural considerations. And I think if you look at Imperial Germany, which was largely responsible for starting World War One, and of course, Nazi Germany is largely responsible for starting World War Two. What that tells you is you didn't need Adolf Hitler to start World War One. Yeah. Right. And I believe that there is a good chance you would have had World War Two in the absence of Hitler. Right. I believe that Germany was very powerful, it was deeply worried about the balance of power in Europe, and it had strong incentives to behave aggressively uh, in the late 1930s, early 1940s. So I believe that structure mattered. However, I want to qualify that in the case of Adolf Hitler, because I do think he had what you would call a will to power. I've never used that word to describe him before, but it's consistent with my point that I often make that there are two leaders or there have been two leaders in modern history who are congenital aggressors. Uh, and one was Napoleon and the other was Hitler. Now, if you want to call that a will to power, you can do that. I, I'm more comfortable referring to Hitler as a congenital aggressor and referring to Napoleon as a congenital aggressor, although there were important differences between the two because Hitler was probably the most murderous leader uh, in recorded history, and Napoleon was not in that category at all. Uh, but but both of them uh, were uh, driven by what you would call a will to power. Uh, and that has to be uh, married to the structural argument in Hitler's case and also in Napoleon's case. Is there some degree on the human psychology side that resentment because of how because of what happened after World War One led to Hitler losing so much power and then Hitler starting World War Two. So this is the, the human side. Perhaps the reason I asked that question is also because you mentioned the century of humiliation on the China side. So to, so to which degree did humiliation lead to Hitler and lead to World War Two? Well, the question of what led to Hitler is a very different question than the question of what led to World War Two once Hitler was in power. I mean, after January 30th, 1933, he's in power. And then the question of what is driving him comes racing to the fore. Uh, is there resentment over the Versailles Treaty and what happened to Germany? Mm -hmm. Yes. Did that matter? Yes. But my argument is that structure was the principal factor uh, driving the train in, in Hitler's case. But what I'm saying here is that there were other factors as well, as well, resentment being one of them, will to power, or the fact that he was a congenital aggressor in my lexicon uh, certainly mattered as well. So I, I don't want to dismiss um, your point uh, about resentment. So Hitler in particular, the way he wielded, the way he gained so much power might have been the general resentment of the populace, of the German populace? I think that uh, as a result of um, defeat in World War One and all the trials and tribulations associated with Weimar Germany, and then the coming of uh, the Great Depression, all of those factors definitely account for his coming to power. 
I think that one of the reasons um, that he was so successful at winning over the German people once he came to power uh, was because there was a great deal of resentment uh, in the German body politic. And he played on that resentment. Uh, that surely helped him get elected, too. But I think, uh, having studied the case, it was even more important once he took over. I also believe that one of the principal reasons that he was so popular, and he was wildly popular inside Nazi Germany, is because he was the only leader of an industrialized country who pulled his country out of the Depression. Uh, and that really mattered. Uh, and uh, it made him uh, very effective. It's also worth noting that he was a remarkably charismatic individual. Uh, I find that hard to believe because every time I look at him or listen to his speeches, uh, he does not appear to be charismatic to me. But uh, I've talked to a number of people who are experts on this subject who assure me that he was very charismatic. And I would note to you, if you look at the public opinion polls in Germany, West Germany, in the late 1940s, this is the late 1940s, after the Third Reich is destroyed in 1945, he is still remarkably popular in the polls. Stalin is still popular in many parts of Eastern Europe. Yeah, yeah. And Stalin's popular in many quarters inside Russia. Uh and Stalin murdered more of his own people than he murdered people outside of the Soviet Union. And still to you, the ties of history turn not on individuals, but on structural considerations. So, so Hitler may be a uh, surface layer characteristics of how Germany started war, but not the, really the reason. Well, history is a multi-dimensional phenomenon. So I hear. And we're, we're talking about interstate relations here. Yes. And realism is a theory about how states interact with each mm -hmm. other. And there are many other dimensions to international politics. And if you're talking about someone like Adolf Hitler, right, uh, why did he start World War II uh, is a very different question than why did he uh, start the Holocaust or why did he push forward a Holocaust? I mean, that's, a, you know, a different question and realism doesn't answer that question. So I want to be very clear that, you know, I'm not someone who argues that realism answers every question about international politics, but it does answer what is, you know, one of the big, if not the biggest questions that IR scholars care about, which is what causes security competition and what causes great power war. Does offensive realism answer the question why Hitler attacked the Soviet Union? Yes. Because from a military strategy perspective, you know, there's pros and cons to that decision. Pros and cons to every decision. The question is, did he think that he could win a quick and decisive victory? And uh, he did. I mean, a a as did his generals. It's very interesting. I I've spent a lot of time studying German decision making uh, in World War II. If you look at the German decision um, to invade Poland on September 1st, 1939, and you look at the uh, German decision to invade France on May 10th, 1940, and then the Soviet Union on June 22nd, 1941. 
what you see is there was actually quite a bit of resistance to Hitler in 1938 at the time of Czechoslovakia, Munich. And there was also quite a bit of resistance in September 1939. Internally or you mean? Internally, internally, for sure. Yeah. You know, people had doubts. They didn't think the Wehrmacht was ready. And given the fact that World War One had just ended about 20 years before, uh, the thought of starting another European war uh, was not especially attractive to lots of German policymakers, including military leaders. And then came France, 1940. In the run-up to May 10th, 1940, uh, there was huge resistance uh, in the uh, German army to attacking France. Uh, but that was eventually eliminated because they came up with a clever plan, uh, the Manstein plan. If you look at the decision to invade the Soviet Union on June 22nd, 1941, which is the only case where they fail. They succeeded in France. They succeeded in Poland. They succeeded uh, at Munich in 1938. Soviet Union is where they fail. There's hardly any resistance at all, right? Yeah. Well, and to say that they failed the Soviet Union, I mean, my grandfather, fought, I mean, from, from the Soviet Union, you know, there was a lot of successes early on. So there's poor military, I would say, uh, strategic decisions along the way but it was uh it caught stalin off guard it, maybe you can correct me but from my perspective uh, terrifyingly so they could have been successful if certain different decisions were made from a military perspective yeah i i've always had the sense they came terrifyingly close to winning yeah uh, you can make the opposite argument that they were doomed, uh, but I, I'm not terribly comfortable making that argument. Uh, I, I think the Wehrmacht by the summer of 1941 was a finely tuned instrument for war, and the Red Army was in quite terrible shape. Uh, Stalin had purged the officer corps. Uh, they had performed po poorly in Finland, uh, and uh, there were all sorts of reasons to think that they were no match for the Wehrmacht. And if you look at what happened in the initial stages of the conflict, that proved to be the case. Uh, the Germans won a lot of significant tactical victories early on. And if they focused and went to Moscow as quickly as possible, it's, again, terrifyingly so could have been a, a basically a topple topple Stalin. Um, and one thing that that's possible, that's possible. Fortunately, we're not going to run the experiment again. But yeah. one could argue that that had they concentrated as the generals wanted to do in going straight for Moscow, that they would have won. I mean, what Hitler wanted to do is he he wanted to go into the Ukraine. I mean, Hitler thought that the main axis uh, there were three axes. The northern axis went towards Leningrad. The central axis, of course, went to Moscow. And then the southern axis, Army Group South, uh, headed towards Ukraine and deep into the Caucasus. And Hitler believed that, uh, that that should have been the main axis. And in fact, in 1942, the Soviets, excuse me, the Germans go back on the offensive in 1942. 
42. This is Operation Blue. And the main axis in 42 is deep into the Ukraine and into the Caucasus. Mm -hmm. And that fails. But one could argue that had they done that in 41, had they not gone to Moscow, had they gone, you know, had they concentrated on going deep into Ukraine and into the Caucasus, they could have knocked the Soviets out that way. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that in the end, I believe that. I, I think in the end, the Soviets would have won no matter what. But I'm not 100% sure of that. So sometimes... Uh... Maybe you can educate me, but sometimes, you know, they say just like with Napoleon, winter defeated Hitler in in Russia. I think not often enough people tell the story of the of the soldiers and the, the motivation and how hard they fight. So uh, it turns out that Ukrainians and Russians are not easy to conquer. They're the kinds of people that don't roll over and fight bravely. There seems to be a difference in certain people, peoples, in how they see war, how they approach war, how proud they are to fight for their country, to die for their country, these kinds of things. So I think Battle of Stalingrad tells, at least to me, a story of extremely brave fighting on the Soviet side. And that it's a component of war, too. It's not just structural. It's not just military strategy. It's also the humans involved. But maybe that's a romantic notion of war. No, I, I think there's a great deal of truth in that. But let's just unpack it a bit in the case of uh, the Soviet Union and World War II. The counter argument to that um, is that in World War I, the uh, Russian army disintegrated. Uh, and uh, if you look at what happened when Napoleon invaded in 1812, and you look at what happened in 1917, and then you look at what happened between 41 and 45, uh, the Napoleon case looks a lot like the Hitler case, and it fits neatly with your argument. But World War I does not fit neatly with your argument because the Russians lost and surrendered. Yeah. And you had the infamous Treaty of Brest-Litovsk where the Soviet Union then, because it went from Russia to the Soviet Union in October 1917, the Soviet Union surrendered large amounts of uh, Soviet territory because it had suffered a humiliating defeat. My argument for why the Russians, let me take that back, why the Soviets fought like wild dogs in World War II is that they were up against a genocidal adversary. You want to understand that the Germans murdered huge numbers of Soviet POWs. Uh, the overall total was 3.7 million. And by December, December of 1941, remember the invasion is June 41. By December of 1941, uh, the Germans have murdered 2 million Soviet POWs. At that point in time, they had murdered many more POWs than they had murdered Jews. And this is not to deny for one second that they were on a murderous rampage when it came to Jews. But they were also on a murderous rampage when it came to Soviet citizens and Soviet soldiers. Right. So those Soviet soldiers quickly came to understand that they were fighting for their lives. If they were taken prisoner, they would die. So they fought like wild dogs. 
Yeah, you know, the story of the Holocaust of the six million Jews is often told extensively. If uh, Hitler won, conquered the Soviet Union, it's terrifying to think on a much grander scale than the Holocaust, what, what would have happened to the Slavic people, to the, to the Soviet people. Absolutely. All you have to do is read the hunger plan, right? And they also had, had a plan, uh, was it called Grand Planned East? Uh, I forget the exact name of it, uh, which made it clear that they, they were going to murder many tens of millions of people. And by the way, I believe that they would have murdered all the Poles and all the Roma. I mean, my view is that the Jews were number one on the genocidal hit list. The Roma or the Gypsies were number two, and the Poles were number three. Uh, and of course, I just explained to you how many POWs they had killed. So they would have ended up murdering huge numbers of uh, Soviet citizens as well. But people quickly figured out that this was happening. Mm -hmm. That's my point to you. And that gave them, needless to say, very powerful incentives to fight hard uh, against uh, the Germans and to make sure that they did not win. To fast forward in time, but not in space. <laughs> Let me ask you about uh, the war in Ukraine. Why did Russia invade Ukraine on February 24th? 2022 what are some of the explanations given and which do you find the most convincing well clearly the conventional wisdom is that putin uh, is principally responsible putin is an imperialist uh, he's an expansionist he, that's the conventional thinking yeah yeah and the idea is that uh, he, he uh, is bent on creating a greater russia uh, and even more so, he's interested in dominating Eastern Europe, if not all of Europe. Um, and that Ukraine was the first stop on the train line. Uh, and what he wanted to do was to conquer all of Ukraine, uh, incorporate it into a greater Russia, and then he would move on and conquer other countries. This is the conventional wisdom. My view is there is no evidence uh, let me emphasize zero evidence to support that argument. Which part that he would, the imperialist part, the sense that he would, he sought to conquer all of Ukraine and move on and conquer. There's no evidence he was interested in conquering all of Ukraine. There was no interest. In, there's no evidence beforehand that he was interested in conquering, conquering any of Ukraine. And there's no way that an army that had 190,000 troops at the most, right, could have conquered all of Ukraine. Just impossible. As I like to emphasize, when the Germans went into Poland in 1939, uh, and the Germans, you want to remember, were only intent on conquering the western half of Poland because the Soviets, who uh, came in later that month, were going to conquer the eastern half of Poland. So the western half of Poland is much smaller than Ukraine. And the Germans went in with 1.5 million troops. Uh, if uh, Vladimir Putin were bent on conquering all of Ukraine, he would have needed at least 2 million troops. I would argue he'd need 3 million troops because not only do you need to conquer the country, you then have to occupy it. Uh, 
Uh, but the idea that 190,000 troops was sufficient for conquering uh, all of Ukraine is not a serious argument. Furthermore, he was not interested in conquering Ukraine. And that's why in March 2022, this is immediately after the war starts, he is negotiating with Zelensky to end the war. There are serious negotiations taking place in Istanbul involving the Turks. And Naftali Bennett, who was the Israeli prime minister at the time, was deeply involved in negotiating with both Putin and Zelensky to end the war. Well, if he was interested, Putin, in conquering all of Ukraine, why in God's name would he be negotiating with Zelensky to end the war? And of course, what they were negotiating about was NATO expansion into Ukraine, which was the principal cause of the war. Uh, people in the West don't want to hear that argument because if it is true, which it is, then the West is principally responsible for this bloodbath that's now taking place. And of course, the West doesn't want to be principally responsible. It wants to blame Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. So we've invented this story out of whole cloth that he is an aggressor, that he's the second coming of Adolf Hitler, and that what he did in Ukraine was try to uh, to conquer all of it. And he failed. But uh, with a little bit of luck, he probably would have conquered all of it. And he'd now be in the Baltic states and eventually end up uh, dominating all of Eastern Europe. As I said, I think there's no evidence to support this. So maybe there's a lot of things to ask there. Maybe just to linger on NATO expansion. What is NATO expansion? What is the threat of NATO expansion? And why is this such a concern for Russia? NATO was a mortal enemy of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. All right, I'm going to stop there because it goes on. The conversation actually goes on for another ooh, maybe three hours. Three hours, it? it's, it's, a, it's a long conversation. So if you want to hear more of what John Mearsheimer has to say, I, su I would suggest that you carry on on YouTube or wherever. But it's, it's all yeah. I've, I've played half an hour of it, and it's, it's a three and a half hour conversation. So that's only part of what he has to say. But he's, he, his analysis on Ukraine is spot on, and he's very vocal about it. He's very public about it, and he's very he's, he's a mainstream stream guy. University of Chicago is not exactly uh, known for for its uh, alternative point of view, but. His analysis is, is good on Ukraine, and I'm really just trying to extract the the important bits that make sense. And the rest of his point of worldview, his rest of his point of view is his own. And uh, he's yeah, I think I think we've got to hear from all sides. I don't think you can just listen to one side of a discussion. You need to hear from everybody. I do anyway. Otherwise, I can't make it a proper decision about what's accurate and what's not. Anyway, that's pretty much it. I've got a, a show booked in for Wednesday afternoons, East Coast time, 2 o'clock East Coast time. Um, probably going to start at some point in December, do some experimental shows until Christmas, and then uh, settle down into a format. The format I came up with was... Uh, a couple of shows that are conversations every month 
with with guests and uh, a couple of shows where I just make it up as I go along. Uh, so they'll probably end up being this type of format where I'm trying to do 35 minutes of video content or whatever. But anyway, it's, I'll be starting in a couple of weeks. So keep an eye out on a Wednesday afternoon for that. That's on Studio A. Uh, this one will continue. In, you know, with your type of... the ever-changing dynamics of being both physically and mentally prepared for a plethora of possible outcomes to our future and present. A look into the latest technologies, new scientific discoveries, and how they might be used in connection to the human domain and controlling it, ancient cultures and places. Be warned. This is an opinionated look through headlines. Guests that are not afraid to question the narrative. A little bit of crazy ramblings of a stoner conspiracy factus that pushes constitutional concepts. The place and the time are the same, another dimension we call Mountain High Time. Saturdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Mountain High Time. Right here on Revolution.Radio, where information never sleeps and truth breaks the spell. I am Bill Johnson. Some consider my efforts to be an underground law school. I am not an attorney, and I do not give legal advice. I teach. That's lawful and legal. Consider yourself served. You are to appear Friday evenings, 8 p.m. Eastern, Studio A. My forte? Foreclosure and contract law. Grab your legal pad and pen. Learn a broad spectrum of law spanning administrative, criminal, family, tort, and federal law. Bulls and losers cling to old cases. I dissect and comment on the latest rulings that control the courts. Don't be a loser. And if you don't appear, you will be held in contempt. Are you interested in the paranormal? 